All right, Emmaus, would you take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to continue our study in the book of Matthew. Matthew 21 kind of turns a corner a little bit in the story. You're going to hear a lot of the same themes today that Jaron hit on last week at the end of chapter 20, but chapter 21 begins to get us closer to Jesus's time in Jerusalem, his death, his resurrection, so we're continuing that study, and we'll do a couple of different things during the month of November leading up to Christmas, but for the most part, we're just going to stay on track with this Matthew study. You may have picked up a half sheet of notes as we were coming in. Uh, If you grabbed one of those, you can look at some notes if that's helpful for you, but I'll try to guide us through these verses, and we'll think about Advent and Jesus' entrance into the world, but also his entrance into Jerusalem. Let me give you a quick heads up as well. As we begin, for where we're going this morning, at the end of the sermon, uh, we will have a time where you're going to be able to stand and we're going to sing a great anthem together, a song of praise to God. During that final song, the offering plates will go around and if you have a prayer card, you can put that in there. We'll have that happening. But also during that final song, if you just need someone to pray with you, maybe something going on in your family, maybe something going on in your life, maybe now is the time that you've been called to trust in Jesus for salvation, during that final song, we will be here at the front, and we would love to pray with you during that time. Before before we send you out, before you grab a Christmas invitation, you head out this morning, we want you to have a chance to respond to God's word. So just know that's where we're going Uh, this morning. We pray that God would use his word to speak to us. I want to read these verses from the beginning of Matthew 21. Then I want to pray over us, and we'll begin to work our way through this passage. Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. Here's the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, You shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that our hope is in Jesus. And God, we believe that your word is true and living and powerful. God, would you speak to us in a fresh way this morning? God, I pray that through the power of your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would bring healing. God, that you would bring healing to families and to marriages. God, that you would bring healing to friendships. 
God, that you would soften hearts. God, my heart that can become so proud, even so apathetic, God, I pray, God, that you would soften our hearts. Remind us this morning how good the good news of Jesus really is. God, we give ourselves to you, and we pray, Father, that this morning that you would speak to our hearts, you would speak to our minds, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what we're doing here at Matthew 21 and what we're doing at the beginning of Advent is we're going to think a lot about the idea of entrance, what it looks like for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem, what it looks like to make a great entrance. And when I was thinking about the word entrance, what an entrance Jesus made, the word entrance really just brought one idea to mind, and I want you to see this real quick, okay? So nobody really ever made an entrance quite like Kramer did. Uh, my, my grandmother, who was just the most saintly lady I have ever known, loved Seinfeld. She always said that that was her one vice. She was like, this is the most lovely lady you've ever met in your life. And she loved Kramer's entrance in, uh, in Seinfeld. What does it look like to make an entrance? Here's the interesting thing. You can learn a lot about a person by the way they enter a room, by the way they come into place. Some people kind of shuffle into a room quietly. Other people barge into a room loudly. Some people enter into a room and they make people scatter. <laughs> Some people enter into a room and people are just magnetized. They just, they just come to them. You find out a lot about a person by how they enter how they come into a situation. Here's the reality as well. This idea of entering is important for preachers and pastors to think about. There was a time in church life, and, and I'm gonna be careful about this because who knows, I may do this at some point, but there was a time in church life where it was pretty cool for pastors to find interesting ways to get on stage. They'd ride their motorcycles on stage from the side, or they would zip line from the top, or they would rappel in, or something like that. That's appealing. Like, I've got that. You know, I understand the, uh, understand the appeal of getting in there. But there's a danger in that, right? That when you come in in that way, it screams, look at me. It screams pride. It screams entertainment as opposed to, to coming in and saying, no, Lord, here I am. I want people to see how good, how good you are. There's a beautiful quote I want you to see from a, a man named Scott Sauls who writes for pastors and, and just to kind of think about this idea of entering, Saul says when we preachers limp into and out of our pulpits, God tends to do a lot of terrific things in the lives of our communities. But when we hop up there with a swag, when we turn the pulpit into a pedestal or a stage instead of an altar, it's only a matter of time before our communities are weakened. And then look at this next screen. I love this quote from Scott Saul's. God's grace flows downhill to the low places, not uphill to the pompous and put-together places. Um, I probably have told you this story before, but it seems to fit here. The first time that I ever had a chance to, to preach was um, as a young teenager 
on a Sunday night service at a really small church in southwest Oklahoma where I grew up. And man, I was terrified. And I had my little yellow legal pad notes that I had written out. And this thing was going to be amazing. And 12 minutes later, it was finished. <laughs> it wrapped up in a hurry. And you're like, man, Owen, why don't you do that again? So uh, I don't know. I'll think about the 12-minute version sometime. But uh, it was this idea of, well, tripping too. I could learn that. Um, I, I was terrified. But I went up there. I just read the scripture, explained the scripture, gave my little notes that was on my yellow legal pad, and frankly, it went pretty well. And so I was asked to come and preach again at that little church the next year on Youth Sunday. And you know what I did the second time? Man, I strutted my way up there, and I had all my jokes planned out, and it bombed. Bombed. And I remember a key turning point in my life as a teenager I remember after that second sermon, running home. We lived across the street from the church, and I managed to get out past all the older people that loved me and said what a great job I did when it was a train wreck, running to my house and getting on my knees beside my bed and saying, Lord, I will never, ever do that again. We will never enter a time of worship or a pulpit or a place of ministry with that time of pride with that type of look at me type of attitude because you learn a lot about your heart by how you enter into a situation. Matthew 21, verse one. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Okay, this is the ultimate road trip, are we there yet moment. So you guys that take road trips with your kids, kids that scream, are we there yet on a road trip, this is the ultimate moment for that because they have been making their way to Jerusalem for quite a while. Actually, compared to Luke's gospel, Matthew gets them there fairly quickly, but since chapter 16, they've been traveling from the north, from Galilee, down toward Jerusalem. So Peter confesses Jesus as Lord in Matthew chapter 16, and then they begin this journey toward Jerusalem, a journey that really, honestly, started in Matthew chapter 1 in a lot of ways, but they make this journey, and Jesus teaches them about true greatness, and then he talks to them about what it means to be a part of a community, a part of our church, and they're leading down toward Jerusalem. And now, finally, in Matthew 21, they're drawing near to Jerusalem, and it says they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. This would have been directly east of Jerusalem. If you need a point of reference, this is just purely for helping us understand geography. If Oklahoma City is Jerusalem, Bethpage is kind of like Choctaw, so it's still connected, it's still considered part of the city, but it's toward the east as people would come in on, on this road coming from the east. So they come into Bethpage and it says they come to the Mount of Olives. Here's the key that you're gonna find multiple times in this passage. Multiple times in this passage, Matthew is going to connect back to the Old Testament, to the way that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem is fulfilling God's plans. Even here, with this reference to the Mount of Olives, he's beginning to tie us back to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. Much of what happens in Matthew 21 is going to be tied back to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about the coming day of the Lord. And one of the signs of the coming day of the Lord is that the Lord's feet would be planted on the Mount of Olives. That he would be here in this location. 
And it says that he sent these two disciples, and in verse 2, he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he shall send them at once. Okay, here's what's beginning to happen in verses 2 and 3. You get a feeling that what's about to happen has been prearranged, that it's been pre-set up. And it has, it's been, it's been done that in, in two ways. In a very real sense, this whole scene has been prearranged and preset by God Himself from days of old. You're gonna see prophecies coming to fulfillment, you're gonna see things happening because this is how God has set them up. Also, when it says that Jesus says to go into the village in front of you, it's almost certain that Jesus has made prearrangements for the disciples to be able to go in and go to this location and ask to receive this donkey. When it says there at the end of verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. It was almost like this was a passcode to be able to receive these donkeys that the Lord was going to need. So kids, if you go into your sibling's room, and you take something, just say, the Lord needs them, and then they have to give it to you. So uh, no, don't, don't do that. But uh, he had set this up where you could go and, and receive these things. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. This reference to a donkey really begins to tie us to the Old Testament in, in big ways. It's difficult for me, painful in fact, to say anything good about a donkey uh, I told you I grew up in southwest Oklahoma. I grew up in a little eight-man football school town called Central High. We were the Broncos. Our hated rivals were the Bray Donkeys. Can you imagine growing up in a town called Bray? It was actually Bray Doyle. It was a consolidated school, and their, uh, their mascot was the Donkeys, and we hated everything about Bray. You just did not lose to the donkeys. And so it's tough for me to speak well of a donkey, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to here. So this reference to donkeys begins to connect back to the Old Testament in a couple of places. Let me show you some of the connections. 2 Samuel chapter 16 through 20, you have this story of David being pursued, and he leaves Jerusalem, and he's going to leave Jerusalem ultimately on a donkey, and then he's going to come back into Jerusalem. And it becomes this picture of exactly what Jesus is going to do in his, in his ministry, going out of Jerusalem and then coming back into Jerusalem. First Kings chapter 1, when Solomon is anointed as king, he rides a donkey. So there's a connection. Don't miss this because this is the whole passage tied up here. There's a connection between riding a donkey and being established as a king. Happened to David, happened to Solomon, and now it's going to happen to Jesus. This is Matthew's gospel coming to fulfillment as Jesus rides this donkey into the city. There's another important connection that comes in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, there are these different prophecies and blessings that are being given about the people of God, about the different tribes. And there's a reference in Genesis 49 where it says, the scepter, or this, this ruling stick, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in vine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. You say, what in the world does that have to do anything 
Here's the connection. Remember that Jesus would come through the people of Judah. He is the line of the tribe of Judah. There was this prophecy about how royalty would always be associated with Judah, except, here's the kicker. In Genesis 49, the donkey is tied up to the vine and the king is receiving all of these riches. He's living in excess. He's consuming all this wine. He has all of this worldly greatness. When Jesus comes, Genesis 49 is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in a completely reverse way. Jesus doesn't tie up his donkey to a pole and then receive all this worldly greatness. What does Jesus do? His donkey is untied, and then he goes into the city to be the king by giving his life. And so with the coming of Jesus in Matthew 21, Genesis 49 is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in a way that the people could have never imagined. Not in worldly greatness, but as Jesus would come on the donkey and give his life. Look at the way this is developed in Matthew. So Matthew 21, we get a, a sense of how this is developed. Verse 4 this took place, Matthew is going to make this crystal clear for us. This took place to fulfill Matthew's favorite word. This is the whole Gospel of Matthew, fulfillment. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew is telling us what you're seeing here with Jesus coming to the city on a donkey, this is a fulfillment of what the prophet has said. Which prophet? Well, good question. What Matthew has done here is he's taken one line from the prophet Isaiah, and then he's taken a prophecy from Zechariah. Remember, we've already been connected to Zechariah, and he's brought them together because they tell the same message. They give across the same idea. Let me show you the Isaiah passage on the screen. Isaiah chapter 62. Here's the passage that Matthew is drawing from saying, this is what Jesus has come to do. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, say to, to, the, to the people of Jerusalem, behold, look at this, not your king comes, but your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his payment is before him, and they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. So watch this, because this is so cool the way Matthew does this. He draws on this Isaiah prophecy because Matthew loves Isaiah. He picks this Isaiah prophecy about the king who will come, who will bring salvation. Then watch what happens with this Zechariah passage in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Behold, not your salvation is coming, but the Zechariah passage is your king is coming. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. There's Zechariah and Isaiah fitting together. How's he come to you? Humble and mounted on a donkey. Not just any donkey, not an adult donkey, but a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then watch this in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and he shall speak peace to the nations. A donkey is not a war horse. <laughs> a donkey was a sign, yes, of royalty, of coming in as royalty, but not coming in to lead a military charge. Coming in humbly, coming in righteously, coming to fulfill 
the way of the Lord. So what did the disciples do in verse 6? Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now, verse 6, if you've been reading through Matthew with us, is a bit of a surprise. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. You get a feeling that Jesus gave a little, like, side fist pump at that point, like, yes, finally. I asked them to do something, and they did it. It's, it's a sign of their developing obedience. They're developing faith. Jesus said to do something, and just directly they responded and went and did it. So this is kind of Matthew's way of changing our thinking about the disciples. They're getting closer to Jerusalem, and they're also getting closer to faith and obedience and what it looks like to live as his followers. And it says, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. If you read that quickly, it can sound like he sat on both animals at the same time. So Jesus doesn't have one leg over one animal and one leg over the other. The plural them there is the cloaks. He sat on multiple cloaks. He sat on the younger donkey, the colt. Why would the other donkey have been there? Because most likely this colt had never been rode on before, and it would be crying for its mom if the other donkey wasn't there. And so they bring both of them along, and it's a further fulfillment of the Zechariah passage. Look what happens next in verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now that might possibly trigger something for you and be like, hey, that's Palm Sunday. Yes, that's exactly right. What you're reading here in Matthew chapter 21 is what we normally read the Sunday before Easter. This is the Palm Sunday story. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and they're laying their coats and they're laying the palm branches on the, on the ground. Kids, normally in Sunday school on this day, you make the little palm branches and you lay them down and you, and you show Jesus coming into the city. This is that exact story that's happening here as, as he's coming in here. Laying cloaks on the ground was also a reference from the Old Testament of when one of the kings named Jehu was established as king, people laid their cloaks on the ground. So it's another sign that Jesus is coming as king. Verse 9, the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, the crowds are a strange group in Matthew. Sometimes they're for Jesus. Sometimes they're against Jesus. Here, they cry out Hosanna, which is a word from the Hebrew language, from the Aramaic, that is connected to the word for salvation. So it's, it's a cry of praise. It's also a word that's connected with someone is coming to bring salvation, coming to save the people. So it's a declaration about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And they refer to him as the son of David. Now, why does that matter? Because at the very end of chapter 20, there was a blind beggar on the side of the road that was calling out to Jesus as son of David. And you know what the crowds did there? They rebuked that blind beggar who was calling out to the son of David. Jesus, though, turns and heals that man. And the crowds are like, oh, we need to cry out to the son of David now. We see who this one is, this one who cared for the blind beggar is the one who's come to bring salvation and healing and hope. And so the crowds 
start to call out with the same phrasing that they rebuked and rejected at the end of chapter 20. They're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. This is from Psalm 118, this wording. It was wording that was used when the people would travel up to Jerusalem together to go to the Passover, to go to these celebrations. So this was language that the people would have known, but now it takes on new meaning because they see what Jesus is coming to do. Look at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. There in verse 10, the word that says that they were stirred up, that's the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come to King Herod and say, we've heard, we've seen this star, there's a new king that's coming, and it says there that Herod was troubled, that he was stirred up, and all Jerusalem with him. So the first time Jesus came at his birth, he stirred up people. Now when he's coming at the time of his death, he's stirring up people again. Matthew intentionally uses that same word at the beginning and the end of the gospel to show what it looks like for the people to respond to Jesus' coming. Um, there's a little bit of a James Bond joke mixed into that stirred up word because it's the word that later would be connected to our word seismic. So it has to do more with being stirred up and it's more about being shaken. So when Jesus comes, feels a little cheesy, but hear me out here. When Jesus comes, he shakes things up. People's lives are rattled. Things are different because here is one coming as the king, and they do not want to see a king coming. Why? Because the Romans are not going to be happy. The Roman government, the Roman military, does not need someone coming and calling themselves the king and causing revolt and turmoil in the city. Not only that, but this king who is coming is coming as a prophet. And you who are the ones who don't want to hear that a prophet's coming are the religious leaders in the city. They want to keep their way in place. The military leaders want to keep their way in place. Here comes a new king and a new prophet. In your mind, when you read Matthew 21, 10, and 11, here's the image at this point. When you boil water, and you start to see the little bubbles, it's not totally boiling yet, but you can see the bubbles starting to appear in the water. That's what's happening at this point in Matthew 21. Things are about to come to a boil. Things are about to explode. This is when all the kids in the, in the parking lot in high school are yelling, fight, fight, fight. Like you can, you can hear everybody running to this point because things are about to explode, but they haven't exploded yet. It's just coming to this point because Jesus is making his entrance into Jerusalem. Now we're gonna develop this in the weeks to come. We're gonna talk next week about what it looks like for Jesus to come into the city. We're gonna talk about what happens when everything explodes. That, that's coming. Right now though today, here's the connection I want us to make. I want you to see how good the word Advent is to explain what's happening in this passage. When Donnie was reading earlier in our Advent reading, he talked about the word Advent meaning coming or arrival. 
Advent is a word that's used in the church to talk about the expectation of Jesus' coming, the expectation that Jesus would come as as the Messiah, as the one who would be born to save the world. And it's also used anticipating Jesus' return. So we have the Advent, the sense of arrival and anticipation. Here's the neat thing that Matthew does in his gospel. There's the Advent, the coming of Jesus at his birth, but there's also this second Advent as Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the time of his death. And the way that Matthew has done this is you see these comparisons between the two cities. I mean, not between the two cities, between the two Advents. So in both cases, Jesus' birth coming into the world and Jesus' death coming into Jerusalem, you find references to Old Testament fulfillment. If you guys can jump ahead one more slide, I can see some of these connections. You find references to Old Testament fulfillment at his birth and his death. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Both times when he's born and when he comes to die, kings and leaders and cities are disturbed. Both situations involve this combination of royalty but also humility. So at his death coming into Jerusalem, Jesus rides a donkey. Now here's where my thing breaks down, my comparison breaks down. I can't find any place in Matthew 1 and 2 where Jesus' mother actually rides on a donkey and Jesus is riding on the donkey with her coming into the city at the time of his birth. But I've seen the star and I know his name is Bo and so it happened. All right, I, don't, I, don't, I can't point you to the verse, but I'm, I'm sure that Jesus rode a donkey at the time of his birth. Um, my, my mom and dad used to read me this book called The Christmas Donkey about this little donkey called Madrick, and we would read this thing all the time. And so, again, I can't point you to the verse where Jesus rode the donkey at his birth, but I'm sure it happened because it definitely happens at the time of his death. Both times, outsiders worship Jesus. When he comes at his birth, the wise men worship him. When he comes here at the time of his death, you have these crowds, these outsiders that have followed him to this point. And here's the interesting thing. Nazareth is involved in both scenes. So at his birth, his family ends up fleeing to Nazareth. Now at his death, they come from Nazareth to Jerusalem where ultimately he will give his life. There's all these connections that Matthew is making between the advent, the coming of Jesus. Now here's the question. When Jesus comes, how will people receive him? When he comes, how will we receive him? So this is the personal question part of the sermon. What do I really think about Jesus? What do I really think about this idea of religion, this idea of Christianity? A lot of people are turned off by Christianity. They're turned off by religion because they think of a religious leader who wants money, who wants power, who wants popularity. But when you see the story of Jesus played out here in Matthew 21, I hope you see a different figure there of who Jesus is. How did people respond to him? There were the crowds who understood partly who Jesus was, but they wanted more. They wanted their own agenda of what it would look like for Jesus to come into the city. There was the city that was bothered and shaken up. They they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't receive him, but he definitely was messing with them. He was messing with their life. He was messing with their stability. You have the leaders who were threatened 
by the idea of a king and a prophet coming into the city. They didn't like this at all. And then you have the disciples who slowly are beginning to realize what it means to trust in Jesus and to obey him and to follow him. And so the question is, is that true of me? When I think of Jesus' coming at his birth, when you think of Christmas, do you think, yes, that's the one that I trust. He's the one that I want to follow. Here's the kingdom connections that I want us to make as we think about wrapping up, as we think about our own response. Here's, here's those connections. How will we respond to his advent? So this December, between now and when we gather for our Christmas Eve service on the 24th, how will I respond to Jesus? Is it true of my life that I believe in him, that I am devoted to him, that I will follow him? If you are unsure of that, but you say, you know what, I want to consider those things, you are at the perfect time of year to do that. There is no better time to think about what you believe about Jesus, who he is to you, what it means to follow him. Christmas is the perfect time to consider that, and I pray that you'll do that. You'll say, yeah, I do trust him, and I want to follow him. But here's the second part. Here's what we need to think very carefully about. If he's the one that we follow and that we're devoted to, how does Advent, how do the next four weeks shape our lives? So if he's the one I follow, if, if I follow him into the city and this is what he is like, what does that do in my heart? It creates humility. We're in our hearts. This desire for worldly greatness and power can begin to grow up. Christmas is a weird time in America, right? Where we're trying to have this religious peace, but so much about Christmas is how much I can gain and gather and do, and there's this sense of busyness and this sense of consumerism. And the story of Jesus' advent says, whoa, time out. Slow down. Christmas is about humility. Not about my greatness, but about his greatness. And so during these weeks of Advent, I pray that you will have a sense of humility. It's not going to be all about me. It's not going to be all about our family. Our focus is going to be on him, and we're going to do that together, the sense of humility. Also, his advent, the way Jesus comes into the city, he is rejecting worldly power, and he is rejecting military power. And so what that means for our lives over the next four weeks is let's be people of peace, and let's be people of hope. How can I tell if I'm doing a good job showing Jesus to the world around me? Am I a person of peace? Am I a person of hope? Over the next few weeks, when everybody else is panicking, you have peace. When everybody else is despairing, you have hope. The gift that you can give people around you is the peace and the hope that come through Jesus. And this feeling that I am committed to him to the will of God no matter what because I know who is keen. I know who is savior. I know who has all of this figured out and my life is devoted to him. So what we're gonna do right now is after we pray, we're gonna sing a song of praise to God. This is who we believe you are. This is our, our trust in you. 
but also during this time, as these offering plates come around, this is your time of prayer. This is your time of response. We'll be down here at the front. We'd love to pray with you. You may just want to pray right where you are. You may want to take that card out and write a note on it and say, I didn't have the courage to come and speak to you, but I need to talk to somebody about my relationship with God. Fill that card out, put it in the offering plate. Let's pray together right now, and we're going to have a chance to sing as we wrap up our time together. Father, as we, as we get ready to sing together, as we think about leaving here and heading home or heading to the Discover Emmaus lunch or maybe going out to lunch with friends, there's a lot of things we're about to do. But before we do that, God, we want to make sure that our heart is right with you. There may be a sense that we are turned off by religion or turned off by church because of feelings of those people are about money or they're about pride or they're about power, and that may be true, but God, I pray that instead there would be a sense of humility when we think about the things of Christ. God, that every one of us would realize our need for you, that we would trust you, that we would obey you, that we would praise and worship you. God, I pray for those here this morning who are uncertain about their relationship with you. They've been searching, they've been praying, they've been considering what they believe. God, that this Christmas season would be the time that they come to trust in Jesus for salvation, for hope. God, I pray for those of us that are followers of Christ, but our hearts grow so prideful sometimes. God, we're drawn to worldly greatness. We're drawn to power. God, let us be people of peace. Let us be people of hope in a world that so desperately needs hope. Hope is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. So God, we give ourselves to you right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.